Consult is a monthly podcast about software developers who work on Apple platforms to create client products. Join us each month as we talk business, Swift, Objective-C, contracts, App Store, and all things Apple. I'm your host, David Kopeck. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the July 2016 episode of Consult. This is a very special episode. You know why? It's our one-year anniversary. It's been one year since the Consult podcast started, and it's been an incredible year. We've had some incredible guests on the show, some really interesting episodes. As we look back, we're going to go to some of our best interviews and pull out some highlight questions from each and splice them all together for this very special episode. So I hope you enjoy that. I want to remind everybody that if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. That helps the show's popularity and also recommend us on Overcast. If you want to get in touch with me, I'm at Dave Kopeck on Twitter. That's D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. So as we get started, let's go back to our July 2015 interview with Tobias Dumont out of Denmark. Tobias and I were discussing the popularity of his open source project, Async. And whether that had brought him consulting clients, did the notoriety of the project bring some clients to his doorstep? After that, we get into a discussion about open source in client work more generally. So how has it affected your consulting practice, if at all? I mean, getting this notoriety from um, this open source project. I I always wonder when when people have these very, very popular projects, um, whether they actually get a lot of inbound as a result of it. So uh, have you actually talked to potential consulting clients who came to you through async? Nope, I haven't. Uh, so I, I think this, yeah, so that, that's my experience, that there is no, uh, there's no one outside the iOS community that would ever hear about async or think that it would be interesting. Uh, and I, I, I don't know if, if they should, uh, I think I think I if I wanted to I could use it for uh, if I wanted to make blog posts or if I wanted to become uh, more known for doing iOS development in the iOS community that is a way to get exposure. Right. Uh, you can definitely get get very quickly get exposure if you actually do a very good open source project. Uh, I, th- I think we've seen this time over and again and again that that the people that that we know in the iOS community that aren't just in the same city that, as ours. Right. people who had an open source project of some kind. Um, so it's a good way of people getting to know you, uh, but not potential clients, I think, because they uh, they might, I think maybe, yeah, I, I think maybe you could get a job on it sometime where you get, if you, if, uh, if someone searches for my name, then of course my, some of my references would be some work that I've done. Uh, in, and if that's a positive way and it reflects positively on me, then I would be more likely to get a project. But it's it's fairly indirect, I think, uh, the way that that works. Right, and that makes perfect sense. I mean, especially what you said at the beginning, that only people in the iOS community, which are not our clients, right? Our clients are the people hiring us, but they're not necessarily in our community, um, are, are the ones that really know about these open source projects. And I've also had the same experience as far as um, what you're saying about uh, more general employment and being Googled. Um, I've actually had, so I have some open source projects that are not very popular at all, um, but I've gotten employment inbounds, 
like recruiters emailing me because of them. And I found that surprising, but I, it makes sense that our potential clients are not going to be Googling for iOS projects, or um, if they do find them after they're thinking about working with us, they don't necessarily know what they're all about anyway. So, um, yeah, but have you been able to use it maybe as a selling point when 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 talking to a potential new client? Um, You know, hey, uh, I have this very popular project that is somehow relevant to your project. I think I haven't had the need to, to sell myself using that. Um, I think it it could be uh, something that you could profile yourself on. So, I I really like open source projects, and most of the time when when I'm doing work for a client, I want it to be open source because um, usually what they do isn't something new. Uh, it's just they want to do it in a specific way, or they want to push things in a specific way. Um, and I like the way that when you when you use open source. Uh, frameworks for most of what you do. So, of course, you use Apple's frameworks for a lot of the app, but but most of the rest of it is is open source projects, uh, a code from from yeah from somewhere else, and and you couldn't make the app as quickly as you did without using some some other people's uh, frameworks. And then I think it makes sense to kind of I don't know if it's to pay tributes to the open source community, but. But if, if there's no reason for actually making things open source, then yeah, it should be open source by default when you do a project, I think. Um, so I think in, in terms of pushing that to a client, it's easier when, I've have, when I have experience with open source from different points of view. Uh, so both having my own framework that, well, potentially I could charge people for using something like async, but I, I don't think that has any value uh, for right. me. And uh, I probably wouldn't sell even a single, um, single license to that one, right? Um, right. But but so so it's it's a way of saying okay I use open source I open source my things and when I join a project I expect it to default to be open source and then we can decide okay these things we don't want to be open source because it's yeah maybe it has something that the the client wants to keep uh, keep secret but but in the end if if open source is just default then it's much easier for let's say that I yeah you have the async framework but how are people actually using it what is what is the best practices and and I can go out now to GitHub and find other projects that uses async and see, okay, how, how are they using async? And then I can go back and actually improve on async. Uh, and so it, it, it becomes much more dynamic um, to have this giant code base where everyone is contributing to. Uh, and it's also nice when, so for instance, on, on the Be My Eyes project, everything is open source. And, and then we had, uh, we had some technical issues with, uh, with the, the backend and our servers. And we got some help from some very brilliant engineers at some, yeah, some other company, uh, and they wanted to just contribute to the the Be My Eyes project for free, and they could just get all the code from GitHub. So when we said that, they were set up in five minutes, and they had it running, and they could help us debug the issues that we had. Um, so it's also that, yeah, I don't think the quality for a lot of software is actually the software itself, but but more that the data it's using and how it's communicating communi- uh, communicating with. Uh, with the user, uh, and not the code itself is is fairly. Uh, so 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 as we talked about before, when you when you get code from a, a previous uh, coder, then it's really difficult to to use it for something valuable. You can use it for this specific project, but if you want to make something just a little bit different, it's most likely that it's better just to begin from scratch. Uh, sometimes it's because the code is 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 bad, but sometimes it's just 
the projects themselves are so specific to solve what they solve. And, and since we use all these different third-party frameworks, they are the ones that are interesting. And since they're already open source, then, yeah, so, so the value is, is combining the frameworks in a good way. And that's, uh, yeah, there, there usually isn't that much value in the software itself. So have you had clients push back on this approach, on wanting to open source uh, most of what you're working on with them? So have you had a client that says, I want this code to remain closed source um, after you've proposed to them that you want it to be open source? Yeah, I've, I've had that. Um, I've had a client who did, um, they wanted to make a, um, a new social network of some kind and they wanted it to be uh, much more uh, private and much more secure. And, and of course, they didn't want to show how they were solving the security issues and, and privacy issues. Uh, so for them, it was very important that it was closed source. Um, so so sometimes it makes sense that you um, maybe if something is open source by default doesn't mean that it has to be def uh, open source from the beginning, but that you are approaching it as if you were going to make it open source um, because it it opens you up to using third party frameworks in a different way. It opens you up to separating out parts of your code base to be a framework uh, because then others can use it, but you can also use it yourself. Uh, so you also separate the concern very nicely in the app because you're making things frameworks instead of just having one big pool of code. Um, so, so I think that's yeah. Mainly, it should be about security concerns, privacy concerns, or something where, of course, if this this project is something that no one has to know about because the yeah you you don't want uh, to have any press coverage of it before you actually do something. Uh, Maybe it's a high-profile company you're doing it for, and then of course you you shouldn't. Yeah, if you if you're doing an app for Apple, I don't think you would be allowed to open source it from the get-go. Right? In August 2015, on episode three of Consult, I spoke with well-known iOS and Mac programmer, blogger, and podcaster Manton Reese. Manton was at an interesting point in his career. He was transitioning from part-time indie to full-time indie, and part of that new revenue stream as a full-time indie was going to be consulting. So looking at the big picture, what's been your biggest challenge so far in getting into iOS consulting? I think just getting better about estimating work. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that, that's something I've always been bad at. You know, all programmers are fairly bad at this. But just trying to stop myself when I give an estimate or I approve someone else's kind of best guess at what the project is going to take. I need to stop myself more when I realize that my estimate is assuming that everything is going perfectly fine. Like, you know, when I say this is going to take two months, that assumes that I'm working every day and I don't hit any bugs or snags or, you know, APIs don't change or things don't break or, you know, new crazy features and bugs, you know, come up. And so I'm, I'm still not very good at that. I think I'm going to have to get quite a bit better at that so that I don't end up spending twice as many hours as I thought. Uh, especially with so the couple of things that I've been working on lately are like fixed price kind of uh, projects. So it's like I'm not tracking my hours exactly. I'm, I kind of roughly know how much time I'm spending, but it's a flat cost. This is how much I'm being paid to work on this. This is a, basically the schedule, and that's great when everything goes smoothly. But when things go poorly, of course, you run into a big problem where you could put a lot more time into the project than you expected. Right. And that was actually going to be my next question for you, whether you're working on a, a fixed price basis or on an hourly basis. 
And I, I've seen consultants go both ways. I personally, I work on a fixed price basis, and I've had a lot of friends tell me that that's crazy. That um, how can I be doing that? And you, software development is too unpredictable to work that way. But I actually see a lot of other consultants also work on on a fixed price basis. So uh, I'd be very interested to hear your thoughts of why you started working on a fixed price basis. So. You know, I think depending on that project, I think either can work. And not just the project, but also the, the team or the developer that's working on it. I am really bad about tracking hours. And in the past, I've, I've done both. Um, this, this client I mentioned that I was doing Mac software for uh, starting years ago, at one time I was, I was tracking hours. And I found that I would really, I would really be underbilling because I, I, I wasn't tracking you know, as precisely as I really needed to be. Um, and I would feel bad if the hours were too much. I mean, which I shouldn't, of course. I'm working, you know, uh, this amount, and I'm charging, you know, a fair rate. And um, but I just, I just wasn't very good at it. And I feel like with a fixed price, first of all, I don't have to worry about that as much. Of course, you have other problems about, you know, underestimating the time it's going to take and whatnot. But um, I feel like it's a little easier also for the client because. They know they are not going to be charged double if something goes wrong, you know. And but but again, it's just the planning has to be better, and also um, you have to be better about reacting to potential changes when the client says, "Oh, I really want this small change," and that small change actually is like a new feature that's going to require an extra two weeks. You know, pushing back on that and saying, "Okay, we have to we have to add." money and time to the project to make this this work. In the past, I've been really bad about you know saying, okay, that's just a little small thing. I'll just go ahead and do that. But those add up. Those couple small things here and there, and all of a sudden you're spending much more time uh, than you thought. So that's something I just need to, need to get better about. But I, in general, I like fix. Just I feel it's a little less stressful for everyone, um, a little more predictable too. And if, if the project is done sooner, um, potentially you get – maybe paid more than you would have uh, otherwise. So it just depends on the project. <clears throat> so we, we talked about your biggest challenge. What's been the biggest joy of doing consulting? You know, it's something surprising, actually. I, I haven't thought about this too much, but my first thought when you asked that question just now was getting better at mm-hmm. programming. <laughs> because there's actually, I've discovered there's nothing like starting projects and finishing them and then starting a new one and finishing them to get better at a lot of things that I really wasn't that great at before. And, you know, I, I say I've been programming the Mac for years and years and years, decades, basically. I say I've been programming the iPhone for, you know, a long time. But those are, those are just a small number of apps over a long number of years. And I don't know, there's something about starting fresh that I feel like I'm improving. I'm a, I feel like I'm a much better iPhone developer now than I was like a month or two ago even. Um, you know, it's like you start over, there's a fresh project, you, you, you know the mistakes you made, you know, two weeks ago and you know not to make them again, you know, so you fix that kind of thing in the architecture of the app. Uh, you're starting fresh a lot of time with new modern APIs, which is wonderful, you know, being able to say, yeah, we're starting this new project, it's going to require iOS 8. You know, and, and later only, that's really refreshing compared to an older app that I'm maintaining for a while and it still needs to work. Like I, my, one of my apps, Tweet Library, I think I still support back to iOS 5, you know, and so there's a lot of old code in there um, that's just, uh, you know, it's not fun to work on. Right, right. It's not fun to maintain that stuff. Um, and it's also investing time in an old API that's been deprecated for two years or something. It's not wasted time, but... 
it, it's almost wasted time because it's not a skill set that you can take forward to new projects as easily. In episode four, I had the privilege of talking with industry veteran and noted consultant Marcus Zara. Marcus and I discussed what it means to be a part of the iOS community and also some thoughts on the quality of software and how it's been degrading over the past few years. You're also a very well-known conference speaker, and I also noticed you have a very high um, karma rating on Stack Overflow. These all are, including being an author, build your public profile. um, And how much is building your public profile, aside from saying, okay, I wrote this book, important to being a consultant? Uh, To me, that kind of goes to karma. Um, I find that the more I give to a community, the more I get back from the community. So I I can't put a number or a dollar figure on it. I just know that the more I... I help this community the more that I, it, it helps me in, in return. You know, when I put a tweet up there going, how does this work? I get 100 answers. You know, if I say, hey, I've got contract time open, anybody, you know, anybody know of anything, I get feedback. So it's, it's about being in the community, community and embracing the community. Um, and this kind of goes back to before the iPhone. Uh, before the iPhone, when I first got into this community, everybody knew everybody. There was... You know, a couple thousand developers total around the world for the Mac. There were not a lot, you know, uh, and we all knew each other. And it was a very tight-knit community, so much so that competitors would share information. They would share code. You know, if you were competing with somebody else, you go, hey, how'd you make that work? And they'd ship you the code. And they hear, this is how it works, take it. And it was a very friendly community because we were all supporting the dying platform. Um and that, I kind of I've I've just carried on with that, and a lot of others have carried on with that, even into the iPhone, where it's now it's not thousands, it's millions of developers, but there's still these the the people who are giving to the community, who are trying to help it out, and it kind of comes back to you. So you know, every morning with my coffee, I try to answer three Stack Overflow questions. I don't always succeed every morning, but that's that's the goal, and try to try to at least you know answer them, review them, upvote them. Um, give some feedback there to the community. If I see something that's beyond a Stack Overflow question, I, I jot it down and say, okay, I need to write an article on this. And I'll write, you know, and then I write articles and publish those out there. And it's all about giving that to the community. The same thing with conferences. Go in there and it's like, okay, let me, let me, you know, let me help, let me educate so that we can all write better software. Because the sorry, go ahead. I was say, because you know the software is kind of on a decline right now. And it's we want to try to try to get that quality back up. Can you speak more about that? You feel software is on a decline right now. Certainly people have been criticizing Apple's quality the last couple of years in the realm of software, but you feel more generally that, that software development has, has been on a bit of a downward trend? It definitely has. Um, I have a myopic view where I don't look at the pretty pictures. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a data guy. I'm a network guy. I'm a very much of the back of the cabinet kind of guy. And that's the stuff that is like needles in my eyes when it's not working right. So I see that in pretty much every app that touches the network is is not doing it as well as it could be doing it. They're, everybody's so focused on how pretty is the app, how how amazing is the user experience, and forgetting that the networking is a crucial part of the networking of the experience. So the storyboards are beautiful, and the pictures are beautiful, and when you go to use the app while you're in an elevator in the middle of Manhattan, 
it's a terrible experience. But nobody nobody codes for that. And I, I, I do loop Apple in there with this. Everybody's got this problem. Um, and it can be so much better. We can do better than this. But we have to focus on that back inside, focus on it as part of the overall whole of the app and convince management and the people who, you know, write the checks that yes, you can't see this, you can't touch it, but when we get it wrong, everybody's going to know it. So we need to invest the time and energy to get it right. And what can we do as a community to to improve the um, getting that message out to everybody? Mm. Get that message out to, to the entire iOS development community. I wish I had an answer for that. Um, I try at every conference to talk about it. Um, I'm actually writing a talk for next year about the subject in more in depth um, and how that I feel that we're in the, the, the third computer age and it started a few years ago. Um, I'm not exactly sure how to get the best message out there. I wish that Apple would do more, but I don't know how they would do more. Um, perhaps leading by example would be a good way to do it. Uh, I think their consumer-facing apps suffer the same problem that everybody else does. Um, as developers, we need to be testing in, no, in, in low to zero bandwidth locations. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a big one. That's you know, the easiest one in the world. You know, turn, on, turn on network latency and watch your app fall apart. Fix that. Um, we as developers need to learn that... The networking side, the persistent side, is something that needs to be considered during the design. It's not something that we think about at the 11th hour before we ship the app. It's not part of performance tuning. It's part of app design. Um, and that's something that not a lot of people seem to buy into. They, they think that, oh, I'll build the app, and then I'll tune it, and that's how I'll make the networking better. No, that's, you've, we've already failed at that point. We have to build it as part of the app's design and take into consideration going, okay, what happens on this screen if the network goes away? You know, that question's right. rarely being asked during design time. Right, right. Well, I will say, um, as a counterpoint, I build a lot of prototypes for very, very early stage apps. And sometimes the amount of effort that would go into putting a local cache, a local persistence, um, is just not worth it for the prototype. You just want to show a MVP that works, that isn't this, and this is this probably sounds awful to you. But at the same time, what happens is we don't intend those prototypes to be industrial strength versions that are going to launch for thousands of users. And then the client doesn't want to necessarily spend more money on, on doing it the right way. But with the initial budget that you had, that's what you could get built in a reasonable amount of time. The syncing issues around using something like Core Data as a backend can be immense. Let's say you're using, I have worked on a project where I took over from a developer who was using Parse on the backend and Core Data as the local cache. And the, the syncing issues between the two were horrendous. Um, so how do you get around when you're on a, working on a prototype is is it worth dealing with those syncing issues? Um, yes. So to back up to that, you know, we as engineers, as a community, need to f- to get over the fact that prototypes are going to production. It's been doing that for my entire life, mm-hmm. um, and I and I'm fairly old, so this is not a new concept. This is this happens, and it will always happen. It'll continue to happen. So we need to accept that our prototypes need to be industrial grade. Mm. It sucks, yes. But 
on the other side of it is, you know, if we're consultants and we're going from project to project to project and we're starting over again, over again, over again, by the third or fourth time you do it, it's going to be fast. You're not going to be sitting there going, okay, now how do I build a context again? How do I build a core data stack? No, you're going to be able to bang that stuff out. <clears throat> and if you build good design, it's kind of where my uh, my massive view controllers article right. on, yes, my, on my website came from, Yes, is if we build it from the beginning with the caching in place, it's not that much more code. It's a tiny amount more code in the beginning. And our app's built right, and our prototype's built right. So when they say this prototype's great, ship it. We don't have go. Oh crap! We we go. Yeah, it'll hold up, and we can we can build it right. It's not you know whether you're using Cordata or something else. Cordata just happens to be my hammer. It's not that hard. Um, specifically with Cordata, everybody's got this this belief that it's this incredibly verbose, complex thing that's that's unmanageable, mm-hmm. um, but it's not. To stand up core data, you can do it in six lines of code. Um, I actually threw down that challenge. I said it was five. I was wrong. It was six. We can use core data with a very tiny amount of code. Yes, it has a lot of complexity. It has a lot of features in it, but we don't need them for our prototype. We need them when we're on version four. Great. And they're there. They're, they're available. So build our prototype. Let's use core data as the cache. Let's make sure that our views feed from the cache. Let's make sure our networking code feeds into the cache. And we're probably two more hours, maybe three more hours into the project than we would have been if we had just used, I don't know, AF networking or whatever the, the current trend is. Right. It's not that much more. You know, we're losing a day, let's say, at the worst case, including testing and QA and all that stuff. It's an additional day. But we save that day now, and we don't have to have that conversation later when they say ship it, and we say we have to refactor it because we didn't build it right the first time. In episode five, I spoke with Michael Fellows about building his consultancy, Broadway Labs, and his lead generation service, Broadway Leads. In this clip, we discuss his presentation, Filling Your Freelance Pipeline, with some great tips for new consultants. Um, Before we get into that, I I watched, uh, or I read rather, a presentation you gave called Filling Your Freelance Pipeline. There were a few interesting points in it that I just wanted to get your take on, Uh, well, I got your take on them already, but I want to get some more color from you about. Um, one thing you mentioned is that it always adds a lot of value to send out a proposal, even if it seems like the project might not happen. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, it's like 48% you're more likely to sign a client if you send them a proposal. So doing that one simple thing gets them serious, right? A lot of people talk, 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 you know, and kind of maybe don't send out something formal because they might not be sure that there's a deal there. Um, well, I mean, always be the, always let the client decide if there's a deal there or not. You don't need to be the person that decides, Hey, like, I don't think he's interested. So by sending a proposal, you know, it shows you're serious, you're ready to go. It gives them a detailed breakdown of the project and then how much it's going to cost. Um, so that, that makes somebody more, much more likely to buy from you. You also talked about the difference between local leads and remote leads, and you talked about a couple strategies for finding local leads. Um, Mm -hmm. We're not yet at the part of our discussion where we talk about Broadway leads, but I assume that Broadway leads is about remote leads and not local leads, right? Correct. So talk about your strategies for finding local leads. You mentioned um, meetup.com as a great resource. How should developers go about or consultants go about um, finding local businesses that want to build apps? Yeah, so I mean... Step one, I mean, if you're not in with your local developer community, you're doing it wrong. 
So going, if you're an iOS developer, you know, you should be looking for a Cocoa Head. You should be looking for any iOS developer meetup you can go to in your city. And if there's not one, you should create one. Because um, getting to know the community is really going to help you when, you know, somebody has too much work and um, has a little bit of overflow, you can pick that up and vice versa. And that's how you build, you know, real working relationships and long-term business relationships with people. Um, as far as getting, getting to know local businesses, you know, going to marketing meetups, entrepreneur meetups, because um, that's where you're going to find people that, you know, either have an existing business and have technical problems that they want solved. Um, or, you know, they have an idea for a technical product and they don't have the expertise to put it into play. So that's going to be a huge win there. Um, and also getting into remote, right? I mean, depending on which city you live in, you know, if you're in New York City, San Francisco, or I'm in Austin, like you can make a living feeding off your neck of the woods. Um, but, there, you know, there's no reason to limit the other opportunities that are out there, especially when, you know, we work with a lot of local clients and they might as well be on the other side of the world because, everything we communicate through all, all our project management tools. It's, it's all basically done remotely. Now you're in Austin, Texas. What's the local iOS dev community like in Austin? I know I interviewed Manton Reese. He's also from Austin. Um, sounded like you have a bit of a community there, right? Yeah, it's huge. I actually just moved here, um, a little about six weeks ago. So I'm still pretty new. Uh, but you know, I've been going to a number of meetups here in town and we have, we are very, very fortunate. Uh, we have pretty much a tech meetup every day. Um, a lot of really cool startup events, a lot of really cool entrepreneur marketing, networking groups. Um, so it's a really, really killer community around here. What led you to move to Austin? Uh, I'm from Texas originally, so I was living up in Indiana. Okay. Um, that's where I went to school. I went to Indiana University. Um, and, you know, loved it. Loved my friends there. I had a great group of clients there. Um, you know, I just felt like I wanted to move to a city where there's a bit more opportunity, larger tech market, um, nicer weather, and more stuff to do. So... Austin was the one that really, really jumped out at me. So, so far, so good. Don't think I'm going to be leaving anytime soon. Another thing you mentioned in filling your freelance pipeline, which I'll link to in the show notes, um, is that people should think about themselves as a consultancy, not a freelancer. Um, What did you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, a lot of of freelancers, um, I mean, you want to, you want to, basically create systems in your business, right? So making it look like you are larger than you actually are because you're going to have a lot of value if you can say, hey, you know, I'm a consulting company. I have, um, you know, here's what I work with. You know, here's people I work with. You know, even if you want to be a freelancer only and you don't want to hire a team, you know, just being able to have that storefront that people can go to and make it more, you know, legitimize um, versus just going to an individual um, something that I found was huge. Yeah, absolutely. It, it always kind of annoys me when um, people say to me, well, you're just a freelancer, right? Yeah, exactly. that's sort of true, but there's more to it than just doing the programming, right? Yeah, and from a, from, exactly. And from a client standpoint, too, um, if they can kind of see you as you know not just necessarily an individual with a skill set, but as a gateway to um, other individuals and other teams, uh, that just puts more value on you. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Um, is there anything uh, that the average consultant or freelancer, whatever term we want to use, doesn't know about their own business that you come across commonly? Because you interact with so many through through lead generation. So mm-hmm. is there something that the average um, ILS consultant, let's say, um, doesn't know about their own business? 
Yeah, I'd say most freelancers that come to us have a very, very um, under, I don't want to say under-optimized, just not a very strong online presence mm-hmm. um, as far as a landing page for their services, portfolio for what they've done. Um, that's one low-hanging fruit that if people could really get out there and showcase some more of their work and put up a really, really professional storefront online, I mean, that, that's something that will win you more deals right there. Also, one thing we found that a lot of developers do is not following up. So, um, you know, sales is kind of a, um, it can be a sticky subject for software developers. It's not, not, some people are good at it, some people aren't. Um, but one thing people do is, you know, oh, I reached out to so-and-so, like, didn't hear back from them. Well, reach out again. <laughs> reach out again. Keep going. I mean, you know, it, there's clients that I've worked with that I've had to follow up six to ten times on. And it's not because, you know, they didn't want to work with me or you know, they, they weren't interested. It's, you know, people are busy. Like people, uh, you know, there's people that have tens of thousands of emails sitting in their inbox that you just don't get to. Right. So, um, showing that you're persistent, showing that, that you really want the project like that and following up. I mean, that's something that, that'll win you more deals as well. Right. I, I think a lot of developers are not really extroverts. I, I don't think it usually goes together. Um, yeah. I, I am myself, but I think a lot are not. And earlier, there's probably some people listening and you're saying, you know, go go to a meetup and introduce yourself to everybody and give businesses that you don't even know if they're even interested in doing a mobile app, your card. Um, that probably scares a lot of people, but you really have to put yourself out there, right? Well, that's why I like saying, you know, you're not a freelancer, you're a consultancy, you know, because if you really want to be a freelancer and really want to be a successful freelancer, you know, you have to run your operation like a business. Um, you have to, you can't be scared to go out and do the marketing and meet people and do what it takes to really grow your business. Um, you know, but I agree. I mean, I think there's a lot of developers too that are, um, that are great with people. I mean, some of my best friends are software developers, but I think you're right for them. There's, there's certainly, it comes with sitting in front of a computer for most of the day, right? Like you're, you're gonna more yeah. introverted people are gonna naturally be um, more attracted to that. Um, but really breaking that mold and getting out there and meeting people is really what's gonna set you apart. Episode eight with Brandon Trebatowski is really one that's worth going back and listening to. If you're building your consultancy like he did from a single person to a sizable team, Brandon talks about hiring and what it's like to be based in New Mexico and work remotely with a lot of his team instead of being in Silicon Valley or New York. But in the following clip, we talk about two posts from Brandon's blog, which I think you'll find interesting for how blunt and relevant they are to many client conversations that we have. I want to talk about a couple posts from your blog, and you write a blog that's actually about consulting, very, very relevant to this podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's start with a blog post that you wrote called, Your App Idea Most Likely Falls Into One of Three Categories. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about... um, what those three categories are and why having an app in one of those three categories is probably not the best thing in the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, off, we, we all get pitched applications. And so I, these are the sort of the three criteria I usually evaluate against. And so the first category is the app has been done before. You know, this wasn't the case early on in the App Store market, but now with millions and millions of applications, most likely the app has been done before. So I'm talking, you know, the Instagram clones, the Uber for X, etc. And so really, you know, when I present this to a client and they sort of fall into this category, the real way for them to be successful is how are you going to innovate on this particular idea? Um, 
Second category things fall into is the app idea is is just too niche. So you know, for some reason, someone hasn't built it before, and there's most likely a reason. It's you know, it might be just some joke between you and your buddies or something like that that the rest of the world doesn't get. Um, who knows? Sure. And then finally, there's there three. There's a reason the app doesn't exist. So I sort of mentioned this in the post that you know. Uh, I, I get pitched the idea of mapping out a grocery store all the right, time, right. almost as much as the Instagram thing. You know, I, I said I said that you know my dentist was pitching it to me while he's doing my teeth one day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so there's a technical reason that that doesn't exist, and it's be, you know it's because it would be too cumbersome to integrate with their archaic inventory management system. You'd have to get them on board or require a lot of capital. Grocery stores change their layout frequently, et cetera, et cetera. And so those are, those are sort of the three main categories. Um, and the I, last and I, one is pretty broad, right? That last, that third category, there's a reason why the app doesn't exist. There could be so many reasons and somebody without a technical background might not be able to pick up on them, right? And how do you tell the client that their idea is basically a bad idea for one of these three reasons, especially that third one that they might not really comprehend fully. How do you break the news to them? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, I oftentimes I, I just feel it's best to be upfront with them. And, you know, I've had clients thank me for being open and honest. And sometimes, you know, I'll tell them, you know, if you don't believe me, you're, here's a, I'll refer them out and I'll say, hey, you're welcome to go talk to these folks if you can get it built by them and it's maybe something I'm overlooking, please go and do it. You know, I, I use uh, the crew service sometimes and sure. uh, yeah, I'm a part I, of crew. I'll send them to crew. Um, and um, just just because, you know, if, if for some reason I and maybe maybe I, it's just a technical hurdle I can't solve. And so yeah. I would be happy to happy to give someone else the business if they can. Yeah, yeah. But it's always a hard conversation, right? Because this person is so excited about their idea. And they come to you and they think, well, this is my next step is getting this great team at Pixagon and build it. And you have to break kind of to them what might be earth shattering news. They, you know, they, and I've had s similar experiences where people come to me with Instagram clones on a regular basis. And it's just like, don't you understand that your probability of success with this is very, very low? And for, for the reasons that you cite in the blog post and telling them that. I find an emotionally distressing conversation for me because I feel like I'm crushing their dreams a little bit. Do you feel ever like a dream crusher? <laughs> you know, uh, yes and no. I think one other thing I, I try to do to help soften the blow is I try to offer them a way that they're, that we could potentially do their application. So, so that they still, you know, because most of the time if they're at the point where they're talking to you on the phone, it's been keeping them up at night. Yeah. They are literally dreaming about this. They think they're going to be the next Mark, Mark Zuckerberg. Right. Um, so, for example, you know, the grocery store application, I would, I would turn around and suggest, hey, you know, well, while we can't necessarily map the grocery store, why don't you talk about a big chain store like Costco who has the same layout for most places yep. and at least just categorize things. So, hey, I'm looking for the frozen foods or I'm looking for tenant, you know, the sporting equipment. And start with something a little bit more broad and even see if you can get user adoption. Um, and so oftentimes they're very open to um, some of these sort of suggestions that I've had. And I've even had clients who have sort of changed their tune a little bit and then I've eventually taken on their work. 
Right, right. That makes sense. So let's talk about another blog post you wrote, Ship Products You Are Proud Of. Tell us about your, the concept behind that post. <laughs> this, that post was a, sort of a rant <laughs> after I was just frustrated by uh, other developers. Um, okay. So, um, you know, I, as a consultant, as a company, it's very seldom that I get to actually work on greenfield applications. Um, you know, most of the time we're inheriting source code from somewhere else. Um, I mean, if you're fortunate enough to work on greenfield applications all the time, then more power to you. Let me know where your pipeline's at. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but for the most part, it's not the case. And so we're dealing with legacy code that may or may not be good. Um, and it's never good. It's it's never good. No, you're kidding, right. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's almost never good. And and so um, I'm trying to I'm trying to glance over the post real quick. So it, it becomes it becomes immediately apparent, you know, what the developers were thinking, whether or not they you know outsourced it to a team without proper direction. Um, they weren't following proper you know code standards or guidelines, or they're using junior developers. Or they were just in a rush, and you know this was meant to just be an MVP, and it was slapped together. Um, and so this this post was sort of my rant, saying let's let's all just stop worrying so much about the money. Let's build things we are absolutely proud of, and the entire community will be better because of it. In episode nine, I spoke with Dan Lowenhertz, and Dan is a really interesting developer. Because he's been involved with some huge brands, things like the Black Tux and Coffee Meets Bagel that everyone's familiar with. And early on, he was one of their key technical resources, building up the back ends of these services and their apps. Yet, Dan continues to choose to work as an individual. He likes being a lone wolf consultant. He doesn't want to build a team. So it's very interesting to get insight from him about building back ends and back ends that scale. And Dan is on the side of doing everything from scratch, using something like AWS and Django or Ruby on Rails instead of something like Parse or CloudKit. When uh, you're doing your iOS apps, do you always build your own backend in Django or do you ever use a backend as a service? Uh, I have actually, I, I've played around with a few backends as a service, but um, I've never fell in love with one enough to move away from a Django powered API backend. Um, so pretty much every iPhone app I've worked on is either powered by a third-party API like Twitter mm -hmm. or Pinboard, or it's powered by like a Django REST framework backend, you know, where you just hit get JSON, parse JSON, and deal with it. This has been a big topic in the community the last few months, of course, with the situation with parse. If you were talking to an iOS developer who didn't have experience building their own backends and they're kind of weary of the whole backend as a service situation, how would you sell them on Django? I'd probably tell them that um, Python's a very straightforward language, just as Ruby is. You know, I'm, I'm not going to, I think Rails and Django, for sake of this conversation, are fairly equivalent. You know, both are very easily, easy to understand, very easy to parse, you know, and I think, as coming from a developer point of view, it's very easy to get up and running. The documentation is very well written, and frankly, if you've got a good amount of experience with the command line, with some investment, uh, you can get to a point where it's easy to deploy a server. And I will say that when I started doing web development, getting a server up and running and like 
<laughs> running running Django in production was a huge hassle, but things have really matured, and it's really not as bad as um, as it might seem. Or uh, I mean, and there there's a huge bias component here, which is that I'm very comfortable with it. So um, so I, I don't want to make it seem like it's super easy to everybody. Uh, I'm just very used to it. So getting the first server up is one thing, but what about when you're working on one of these apps that turns out into a rocket ship? Like yeah. the ones we've talked about earlier, how do you go and scale that, that back end? Is that something you'll handle yourself or will you bring in somebody else to do the, um, let's say, the DevOps side of things? Um, yeah. How do you so, go doing the um, scaling? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. Um, and it's a question I get a lot from clients too. Really, the the... The thing is that you really have to remind uh, that I have to remind myself a lot. Number one, and this and this is really unfortunate, but um, you know most startups will never need to go past one server, and it's it's something that no one really ever talks about. I think, but it's um, I mean server I mean server hardware has gotten to a point where if you can serve like a couple requests a second you're probably golden. Like, I don't want to do the math. I mean, I could do the math in my head. A couple requests a second, say five, 60 seconds in a minute. You know, that's 300 times an hour. Like, you get up into the tens of thousands just by changing that variable uh, by a couple hits a second. And if you can serve, you know, like 10,000 people a day, 30 days in a month, that's 300,000 uniques or 300,000, you know, requests. If you can do that, like, you know, a third of a million, that's not too bad. Now, when it gets to the real intense scaling thing, like, really shooting up, uh, any sort of, you do reach a point at which you ask yourself, is it worth it to build a scaling infrastructure, something like Netflix does, or has, um, that auto-scales based on the time of day and how many people are using it? Now, when you're at the scale of, like, a big company like that, you know, you're, it's a totally different territory than like, okay, so uh, we've hit our first 100,000 users, now we need our first 200,000. Honestly, for most of those situations, I just ramp up another server. <laughs> AWS hardware is actually uh, pretty powerful. Um, I mean, really any sort of hardware that lives on a solid state drive is pretty powerful and not really that expensive. So it tends not to be really high in my in my like calculus, for lack of a better word. I just don't really think about it too much, um, and it tends to work out. When do, things do get to a point though, where it's like, oh my gosh, servers are exploding, things are going down all the time, then yeah, uh, that's the point at which you want to bring in like someone who's familiar with you know DevOps uh, and who's got like good experience with like containers and deployment of, of containers and, you know, can set up a load balancer and really, uh, hit that home. But, uh, it's not something that I've really chosen to focus on. Aaron Hillegas, the founder and CEO of Big Nerd Ranch is nothing short of an industry legend. So it's no surprise that episode 10 featuring Aaron is the most popular episode of consult over the past year. In the following clip, Aaron tells us a little bit about what makes a good client and what's the important information to get from a client after the first meeting. What makes a good client? A good client 
I mean, the first thing you always want is a client who can pay their bills. Right. A lot of people come to us with very sketchy ideas and very sketchy plans for uh, paying us. And you don't ever really want to be in the position of being an investor in a startup if you don't know you're an investor in a startup, <laughs> which is what has happened sometimes. We have had customers who have come to us and have said, oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to pay you. And then you get a few months in and they seem to be very reluctant to pay their invoice and you realize they have no money. And they were just thinking that they would get venture capital by this point and be able to pay you. So suddenly, you, you Big Nerd Ranch is the venture capital firm. Um, that has happened. So first thing, make sure they have money. And then the next thing is that they have a real problem. You want to be solving some real pain point for them so that they are really motivated to to be part of it. And I think that was is sometimes a problem is people think, well, it'd be cool if we had this. I really like a customer who says, my God, if we don't have this in a reasonable time frame, our company is going to suffer. So you want somebody who's really motivated and has the cash. And then once you get into the process, you want someone who's going to be a partner in it. And it's very easy for a consulting company to get into an adversarial situation where the customer is demanding unreasonable things and hope they can get a little bit more work out of you for the same price and get it to market slightly faster just by creating anxiety all around. And um, and that's when things really go off the rails. So you need to be very honest up front with the client about how long things are going to take and what the process is going to be. You need to be giving them builds regularly so that they can see what's happening. And uh, when they come to you with changes, you need to be very honest about, well, this is a, this is a significant change and it's going to require these, these uh, re-implementations on our part. And that, that, those early conversations, when often you're still in the sales process, can be um, really scary. But it's really important to do it right. And we work really hard to do it right. Well, that's a good segue. What are the most important pieces of information to get on a first call with a potential client? So what do you need to, let's say, write an estimate and find out if this is a client that you should really pursue? Oh, we have a standard set of questions. And, and I think they're the same that every consulting company has, which is, you know, who is the audience for this app, really? And that is a really deep question when you get into it. Is the, the no one's typically using the app right now? It's just something they think they need. Can you really specify who they are? How technically savvy are they? How are they distributed? What sort of network connections are they going to have? The uh, other thing is, of course, deadlines and budget. You need to know the constraints that you're working with. We can do anything, but if you have a deadline and a budget, and they're 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 small, it can be very constrictive. And there are industries where you can't ever miss a deadline. You've, the, the, the app, if it arrives after a certain date, is worthless to them. And you always need to know that going in so that when someone asks for changes, you need to say, well, this is going to change the ship date as well, so we can't do this. Hmm. Um, you always want to know what platforms they want things on. So, uh, if it's a simple application and they need a web version of it as well, it may make sense just to do the whole thing using web technologies. We are not, in every case, demanding that everyone do native applications. Mm -hmm. in, in my experience, there is – okay, so if someone asks me, they say, I would like 
an app written that is native on Android and native on iOS. And well, let's, let's just say that. And they say it's just got to be sort of a decent, you know, form-filling application. And they come to me and I say, well, that's great. That's going to cost you, let's make up a number, $50,000. Mm-hmm. And they say, super. They say, well, how much would it be if I did all this snazzy stuff to make it really delightful? You know, all sorts of animation and web services and clever caching, a little bit of OpenGL here. And I say, well, now it goes from 50000 to to $100,000. Mm-hmm. And then they'll come to me and they'll say, great, what if we do it just using web technologies? Well, we have a web team. We can do the back-end services here. We can do the JavaScript. And we can even do it in a very mobile-friendly way. And getting something good, a web application that fills out forms and looks great on mobile platforms, is maybe not as expensive. Maybe getting it to a good usable state costs Thirty-five or forty thousand dollars instead of fifty thousand dollars. But then, when they take that next step, where they're talking about animation and three D graphics and map overlays, now all of a sudden we're not talking about a, le- a leap from thirty-five thousand to a hundred thousand. Now we're talking a leap from thirty-five thousand to a million dollars, mm. or maybe it's not possible at all. And so that's a really important question about what we're trying to do. How deep in the exotic and delightful area are we going? And that can help us determine whether we want to use web technologies or we want to write native applications. Appropriate for an episode that's a look back at a podcast, we'll end with a clip with Saul Mora talking about his own podcast, NS Brief, and how it's affected or not affected his consulting career. As a note, Saul's podcast, NS Brief, was actually one of the inspirations for this podcast, Consult. So in 2010 already, you started NS Brief, and how did that all come about? I, I noticed in the first few episodes, and I've actually listened to every episode of NS Brief, believe it or not. Um, oh, wow. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you had some amazingly big names in the community, people like Rob Ryan, Justin Williams, Dave Wiskus. Um, how did you get the podcast started, and how did you get these uh, great guests on the show? Yeah, so uh, by 2009, um, one of the other influences for me was actually I have to get, give credit to Scotty and Late Night Coco uh, sure. was definitely what got me really, really interested, super excited about, oh man, I really got to try out all this stuff that I'm hearing about on Late Night Coco. That was, that was the pivotal show for me um, to really get me going. And after a while, I was thinking, Wow, late night cocoa can't be all there is. Uh, and I was also on this really heavy podcast bent back then. I I listened to every podcast that I could, and I still listen to tons of podcasts now. So it's it's really been a, a primary source of information for me uh, for, for many many years. And I was just thinking, why don't I do one? I am independent. I have no job. I'm just working for you know the the folks at Willow Tree, and I should just do one. Um, and for one, it'll connect me, you know, I thought, oh, shit, it'll connect me to the community. It'll help me meet people. I have, I don't know anybody in the community. I'll just talk to people and ask them. And what better excuse to talk to people and ask for their, some advice or some knowledge than starting a podcast. So it really was basically the, the exact same motivation that Scotty had for starting late night Coco. He wanted to learn Coco and he wanted to meet everybody in the community. And so he just like had this podcast as an excuse. And, uh, that's really how it started. 
Uh, and after that, it still took me a while to actually get going. I had floated around, floated the idea around uh, a few people at the time. Uh, I was living in Phoenix, and uh, at that time, I was invited to a developer conference in San Diego. And a friend of mine uh, from Phoenix was there with me, and we were talking, and he was like, yeah, we should start a podcast. And if you listen to the first two episodes, it's actually, that's the dude, uh, Jade Mesquil. And uh, he, we started it together, and we thought we would kind of do this thing as a, as a joint venture. And uh, soon after the, the second episode, I was like, hey, where are you? He's like, I'm pretty busy. I'm like, darn, I guess I have to do this on my own. So after that, I just started getting uh, getting my friends. So, you know, I met Justin Williams at a conference, and a, a lot of the first few people, the first few episodes, if you noticed, they were just at 360 iDev. Yeah. Just like, hey, I want to do this podcast. Can you talk with me for five minutes? And I'll just put them all together and make a podcast. And then um, Dave Wiskus, I actually happened to work with him while I was working in Denver at the time I moved to Denver and worked with him at Double Encore. And, uh, you know, we worked together and I was like, hey, you're a cool designer and people seem to know you. Let's talk about stuff, designery stuff. And yeah, that episode, you know, we recorded at his apartment in Denver and, uh, yeah, it just, I got a real lucky meeting a lot of these people back in the day. And then after a while, I just started reaching out. You know, I was big on Twitter because I would follow everybody and see what was going on. So I would kind of eavesdrop, oh, this, these people are talking about this thing. I should talk to the person on Twitter. So I'd ping them on Twitter, say, hey, you want to do this podcast? And they're like, sure, yeah, what's up? And, and you know, we'd send everything in email and just get it going. And it was it was really that easy to get going. But uh, it was really just the whole idea of getting started was kind of hard for me. It took me a few months to really actually go from like, I should do this to actually doing it. And, uh, you know, that first guest, Rob Ryan, mm-hmm. uh, I think back on him now. I'm like, man, that was huge to have Rob Ryan on as my first guest. Yeah, <laughs> and really uh, was. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even know it at the time that it was like such a big deal. But, um, but you know, the, the whole reason that he was on there is we were coming up with a name for the podcast. You know, we thought, you know, we were trying to figure out what is this thing going to be called? I have no idea. And we were thinking up weird names and kind of thinking, well, what is it actually going to do? It's going to talk about developer ideas and tools and tricks and tips and whatever. And, you know, it's going to be really short because we don't want to really do a whole a long podcast. So it was like, what's short? Well, brief is short. But, uh, and, and, you know, I was like, okay, well, if we use NS brief taking kind of this whole, you know, NS nomenclature, uh, theme. And so NS brief was kind of, well, it kind of sticks. It's kind of catchy. It's unique. It has the whole idea of being short and it's kind of a, you know, dual meaning of it's short, but it's also informing you. So it's got, it's, it's got all these things going forward in my mind. Like, this is a really good name. I should keep this. And then at the time, Rob Ryan was having his issues with briefs.app where it was rejected from the app store. And that was the whole topic for the first episode. So the whole reason that he was the first guest was that I had this name, NS Brief, huh. and I thought, this is too close to brief.app. I should ask him for permission and see if it's okay. And uh, so I emailed him out of the blue, like, hey, I'm going to start this podcast. It's called NS Brief. Are you cool if I do this? Because I know it's really close to brief.app and, and, and all that stuff. And he's like, 
sure, yeah, whatever. And if you know Rob Ryan, he's like, you know, uh, if I look at his email now, I, I can I can totally hear his voice saying everything. So like, sure, yeah, it's all right. Just just you know, it's no problem, no big deal. So he answers back, and I'm like, I'm thinking in my mind, this is a good opportunity. The whole reason that I have to ask him is because of this this uh, this controversy. He should be the first guest. <laughs> so I ask him again. I send him another email. Hey, do you want to be a guest on this show? And he's like, sure, yeah, whatever. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go do that. So that was it. It was really that simple. I'm like, wow, this is awesome. I can just ask people to be on the show and they'll answer and say, yes, this is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, I've yeah, that with consult. It, yeah. You know, so you, sometimes you send an email and you get a very positive response and it, it's amazing. Um, to, to be able to pick the brains of other people who are so notable in the industry. Uh, how has that helped you, if at all, with your consulting career? Well, honestly, with consulting, it's helped almost nil. Okay. Fair <laughs> you, you know, after I, after I went into more consulting, I thought, yeah, this would, this would really help be more of an advertising vehicle and just kind of get my name out there. Um, but it turns out uh, clients don't listen to developer kind of stuff so often. Right, so it yeah. didn't really, yeah, it didn't help in that regard so often. Um, but it did make a name for myself in the developer community. So uh, later on, when I started to meet more and more people, you know, I think people knew and understood some of my background, some of my expertise and experience. And uh, eventually, when I started doing more, I guess, third-party consulting, I'm not even sure what that is, um, if that's the official name or not. <laughs> but when I would con consult for consultants, um, you know, they would, it would be a lot more helpful. I had name recognition with them. So in that regard, maybe it did help a little bit, but, uh, it's, it's helped more later on, actually. And maybe we'll get into that in a bit. But sure. as far as peer consulting, um, the developer podcast didn't really help so much. Thank you for listening to this very special anniversary episode of Consult. I hope you enjoyed the last hour of clips from some very special interviews with some very special developers. If you want to reach me, get me on Twitter, at Dave Kopeck. I'm D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. And as a reminder, please leave us reviews on iTunes and recommend us on Overcast. We'll see you next month.